0: Greg, you ever feel like our intros are getting a little too long? Yes! Fifty! 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 Fifty!
1: 50. fifty. Hi, everybody. You were start-
0: I thought you were going to go at a slower pace of fifty.
1: I looked in your eyes and there was fire, and I was just like, "Go aggressive and mean. Uh, that was a that was a that was a dying embers, is what you saw. <laughs> uh, dead for sure. Like this conversation. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode fifty of La Meekly. Fifty. 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 50. 50. Now let's 50. sit at my pace. <laughs> fifty. Fifty.
0: 50. 50. 50 tell me how you 50, 50. Ba, da, ba, 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 ba. <laughs> welcome to episode 50 of I LA Meekly like live, live, live. In
1: front of from... <laughs> surprise from your living room turn around thanks for staying quiet everybody <laughs> oh for... that's just because we're not funny yeah. and, and interesting <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> thanks for not making noise like you always do in a live show <laughs> yes. nobody yes. likes us <laughs> and it's gonna <laughs> <and laughs> continue that way 50 50 <laughs> 50, 50. <laughs> oh. yeah so welcome to episode 50 who'd have thought certainly not I Not me. I really had a lot of plans for this month uh, about four years ago. I was like, yeah, uh, February of 2018, I'm going to be busy. I can't be doing 50 episodes of something. Here I have to
0: cancel all my plans. I've had to cancel everything for the last 49 months. My baby's so overdue. It'll learn how to feed itself. Babies do that. By eating my intestines. (laughs) 50, 50, 50. 50. (laughs) I guess we should start with a thank you for listening for 50 years. Yes, you want to do it or should I? Thank you for listening for 50 years. Now you do it.
1: Thank you for listening for 50 years. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I wish I could. 50. Thank you. Thank, thank, you. You. thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Tell me, have you? Thank you. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I'm we're not good with sincerity. So, thanking people sincerely, it, it, not, yeah. not computing with me. Thank you very much. You know, you haven't done much. You did. You left some reviews and some stars, but we're doing all the work here. We have so, one you review be for us. every month. We've been. <laughs> there.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's been real. I mean, you snooze you, you lose. Smell you later, etc. 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 This is um. This the, is truly an honor. I don't want to forget to thank anybody. Thank you. Harvey
1: Weinstein Um, Bill Cosby Jeremy Piven thank you again James Franco the guy from that 70s show Casey Affleck Ben Affleck the dad from 7th Heaven these are all fans of ours the only people who listen
0: because we have the voice of children Um, uh, in a couple two or three days there is going to be a special thing released that's going to be all of our intros Mm -hmm. back to back no breaks it's it's not we even say it at the beginning of that it's not for everybody but it's you know it's the only way we know how to celebrate is by shoving our voice voices into your ears
1: i think more than the actual research and then the recording of it i think that is probably the most we've worked on anything together is those (laughs) damn intros i know because we will i don't know if anyone knows it's not like four days of shooting notes back and forth we lock ourselves in a room for four to six hours and yell at each other until we make an intro 50 50 50
2: 50 50 50 (laughs) times
1: so if you like our intros if you like a good uh maybe laugh Every uh, 18 minutes. Uh, you might like this. If you like us, it's a lot of fun. That's
0: how we're marking this 50th episode now. Back to normal. Okay. Hello, Greg. Hi, Daniel. It's... Oh, I didn't notice you. This is our intro. Okay. Oh, I didn't notice you there. Wow. I just... oh, Back to the future. Get out of here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what is this? IG-88 town? That's a Star Wars reference for people who don't know. Back to back to normal. That's how we do it. What is it? It's February first. Uh, February first of two thousand eighteen. First month went well. I hope we're doing. A if February. you were just born, welcome. If this welcome is what your me parents me. are making you listen to, so you become educated, <laughs> yeah. we're sorry. You're going to sound like a baby your, your whole life. If your
0: parents put a pair of giant Bose headphones over the womb while you were in there, then you know us, and you should know that when we say the word celery, that means you attack your parents yeah. and you give us their wallets. <laughs> celery.
1: Celery. <laughs> celery. <laughs> celery. But which salary is it with the c (laughs) or with an s is it salary like i'm making money or salary the sound effect used for bone crunching bone breaking Oh, it's also a food, I guess.
0: It's that thing that grows out of the ground for sound effects crews. <laughs> well, if you like sounds, then you're probably going to like this episode because it's a lot of sound. It's yeah, a whole it's, lot of sound.
1: It's every what? what is every broken down unit of sound is a grapheme or something.
0: I don't know what you just said. Graphemes, there.
1: It's what makes time travel possible. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you break the barrier
0: between uh, between the 80s and the 50s. <laughs> it's February. It's, it's Black History Month, so mm-hmm. we're doing another episode putting a spotlight on that. We're going to uh, be
1: doing uh, black-owned businesses from LA. We were splitting it up. I went down a rabbit hole. The way I landed on my second one I'm going to be talking about was because there was a picture on Tumblr I saw like five years ago. So, of course, I'm going through my Tumblr from like, what was I doing in 2013 or whatever? Or whatever podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. But there was um, a theater owned by two guys. I think it became the new Beverly. And I was trying to figure that out. And it wasn't making a lot of sense. And then I landed with my second. Whatever. We'll get yeah, there yeah, when we get there. don't
0: spoil that. I'm I mean? Mean, no one has to listen. Yeah, yeah no one listens to me. No the yeah. They fast forward. This is the Mark Maron time. They have the Mark Maron button on their phones. I, a Skips new
1: guitar, it. and that's uh, not really sounding. It turns really out it was a
0: cat. Ah, turned out it was six cups of coffee that were just really loud, like me. Turns out that's also me.
1: Glow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs>
0: How? I wonder which much more successful podcaster we're going to be making fun of next month. I know. January was Aaron Mankey mockery month.
1: Yeah. This is uh, Mark
0: Maron mockery month.
1: Let's pretend to be Georgia and Karen.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm the first one to start this. Yeah. I'm the one holding this up. So I'm going to start this off. So we have five businesses for you total. Mm-hmm. And um, at the end, you get to buy one. You get one
1: at the end. <laughs> we're giving one of these franchises away. We don't own yeah. it, but we're going to buy. We're, we no, We negotiated
0: stocks. with all of them. They all agreed. I feel like I have to sneeze.
1: They say if you think about strawberries when you're about to sneeze, fizzles away
0: yeah there's uh strawberries orange peel or blue cube or if you like rub your eyelashes
1: that's all dumb was that backwards <laughs> that's witch how, magic or? yeah
0: that's how you summon tinkerbell nah. <laughs> well, well what better transition let's get right into it <laughs> tinkerbell's here hello
1: hi you're um, quite
0: small <laughs> you're very small if i don't believe in you do you die good
1: <laughs> bye now <laughs> no
0: funeral needed you break it you uh i can't think of a peter pan I don't grow up Don't break it or you don't grow up. You break it, you get eaten by an alligator. Bye. (laughs) TikToks me. TikTok. Don't try to stop me, Smead. <laughs> I'm trying to kill a fairy. Let's start this. Please. If there's one thing that says classical soul on R&B, it's Radio Free 1023. KJLH FM.
1: You work for a radio station now? You're really good at that.
0: Yeah, that's what I told you. We're giving it away. But if there's one thing that says Daniel isn't the right person to give a history of that, it's the collective voice of the whole city. But here we go. It's- Let them stop you. <laughs> Let them try. Oh,
1: they're here. Uh, scared me.
0: It's you the- scared me. <laughs> you scared me. I thought there was a fictional crowd outside. <laughs> It starts with a man named John Lamar Hill, Jr., born June 11, 1923, right off of Jefferson near USC. He went to the Manual Arts High School, and then he went to USC for business in 1942 before he became a sergeant in the Army from 1943 to 45, where he decided he was going to become an aviator, but the death of his dad pulled him into the family business. Unfortunately, business was dead. Fortunately, that's how they liked it, because his dad was a former Pullman porter who became manager of the Angeles Funeral Home in the late 1920s. That's a lot
1: of information brought really quickly. This is how you
0: start it. Greg doesn't like origin stories. We were talking about this We were talking about Spider-Man earlier.
1: Yeah, he doesn't find it
0: necessary to understand how a man can become spider-like, but just give me the
1: fun. I don't need to see a peanut's grown. Just give me the peanut.
0: I don't need the baggage. Yeah. So in December night, This is the origin story of Spider-Man. In December 1946, Hill started work at Angeles Funeral Home and enrolled at the California College of Mortuary Science, which is the only school where the student body is a cadaver.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know more... Okay, never mind. doesn't matter that I didn't know what mortuary... science was. Nobody knows what library science is. I think
0: think you could assume.
1: Yeah, I could probably figure it out. He graduated in
0: 1947 and eventually became owner of the funeral home and also the Angeles Rosedale Cemetery.
1: Where is that at? Do you know? It's in... Is that the one that's off of washington and venice I, the one with the brick wall
0: no they specifically say we're not the one with the brick
1: wall they say that right yeah and they all say greg you're wrong yeah okay if
0: greg asks we're not the one we're with not the, brick the one wall.
1: on washington and between <laughs> washington and venice
0: hill became uh angela's funeral home president in 1949 and in 1954 he started his 20-year tenure as the first african-american member of the california state board of funeral directors and embalmers which is a barrier everyone was waiting to be broken <laughs> people were wearing his jersey he's my favorite mortician
1: I, My favorite 60s TV show was My Favorite Mortician.
0: He invented some sort of two-tone radio emergency system to improve emergency radio alerts. Wait, what did he do? repeat that one more time. A two-tone radio emergency system. Well, he, you know, he made it. He made a better version of the. What already existed. What already existed. Okay. Nobody donated money to our Patreon to get my radio engineering degree, so I don't. I don't understand it yeah. either. But you can thank John Lamar Hill for us having a pretty good radio alert system nowadays, and you can bet he never got credit for that. Obviously, <laughs> he was a member of the NAACP and a thirty-third degree Freemason. Okay, that's the highest. Scary. He died October fifth, nineteen eighty-eight. He's buried at. Angeles Rosedale, and for what I understand, it got a very good deal on that. That should just about do it for the story of KJLH. Oh, silly me. I forgot to talk about the actual radio station. Dummy. God, you're an idiot, Daniel. This is yeah. why nobody listens to you. Don't type any of this. In 1965, Hill had a little bit of money and someone he knew called him with a business proposition. Mm-hmm. The owners of K Fox FM radio station. I so got jelly in my
1: throat. You ate jelly donut, didn't you? Mm-hmm. <gasps> you don't think. You
0: don't think that had jelly in it. So the owners of the K Fox FM radio station operating out of a building on Anaheim Street in Long Beach were selling that station because they had upgrades to a better one. So Hill thought it might be fun to own a radio station. So he bought it and KFox FM became the first black owned radio station west of the Mississippi. Wow. But as it was, it may have been owned by an African-American, but it was not a black quote unquote radio station. KFox was the opposite of that and it was a country music station oh, okay. that was simulcasting on FM and AM. But when the station changed hands to Hill, the FCC caught wind of what they were doing and they weren't allowed to be doing that. So their FM broadcast was cut. So now it was just AM radio. So suddenly the deal Hill made, got a whole lot worse. So now he had a radio station playing only on AM with outdated equipment and low signal range. Most of the signal they did have was just dumping out into the Pacific Ocean. Cool. For the those, pool,
1: those people working on those oil uh, yeah. refineries for and for stuff. For the
0: sh- Shape of Water Monsters. The previous owners also took the call letters KFOX with them and gave Hill the new letters KILB for K in Long Beach, okay. ILB. So now not only did he have a bad radio station, he had a bad radio station with a bad name. Yeah. So Hill decided to make some changes. First of all, KILB is dumb. And it barely made any sense. So he decided if it wasn't going to make sense, he might as well name the station after himself. KJLH, K. John Lamar Hill. Problem was those letters together are a dyslexic dystopia, which apparently I am because I could barely read that. (laughs) That, It wasn't easy to write or say and it was also similar to another station that was in town. So to avoid confusion, to make it clear, he gave it the slogan, KJLH, kindness, joy, love, happiness. That's what it stood for.
1: That's very pleasant. But
0: don't forget, John Lamar Hill. (laughs) He switched away from the country music format and started broadcasting music he was more familiar with, which was jazz, soul, R&B, black music by black music. Traditions. On Sundays, he'd also broadcast local church services and gospel, which is something they still do today. Mm-hmm. Now you don't even have to go to church. Just easy. In my, I'll cruise in my car. Just,
1: no, no, just click on the radio. Sit at home with your Bible. <laughs> Rosary uh, in your hand. <laughs> just <laughs> staring at the wall. Just staring at a crucifix. Just listen to the radio. Kick them back. That's a nice Sunday. Tonight. I like that. Rocking chair. No one's allowed it. No, those are sinful.
0: Those simulate the rocking. If The that rocking and rock and roll, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If that chair is a rocking, probably burn it.
1: <laughs> probably um, take it to the church and just have, you know, bless it or something. I don't know. Put some real legs on it. Covered legs. (laughs) Covered, of course.
0: So he tried selling ad time to people, but nobody would buy it because his station couldn't reach anybody. It was going into the Pacific Ocean. So after about four, he was doing great in Atlantis, though, which exists. (laughs) In Long Beach Bay. Are they like soul music. In Long, Long Beach. Beach Bay. Is Atlantis. In Long Beach. In Long Beach. So after about four years, he moved the transmitter to Dominguez Hills. So now his broadcasts were at least reaching yeah. the demographic he wanted to reach, which was the African-American community in South Los Angeles. It's like
1: Torrance-ish. Yeah. Or, Ch-
0: or Hawthorne. yeah, Dominguez Hills. It's where soccer is born. <laughs> Home Depot Center. That's where I go. To pick up my Home Depot orders, <laughs> and they tell me this isn't what this you isn't, think it is. No, no. But it's—I
1: mean—that's the only place I can go where I can find help. Try to go to regular Home Depot. You won't get anybody.
0: Oh, boy. Here I go. Here Greg I go. really
1: took them apart this time.
0: <laughs> boy, do they deserve it. This episode brought to you by nobody who works in Home Depot.
1: Does anyone?
0: I think that place is run by forklifts. <laughs> that place is run by the honor system. And everybody just got turned into sawdust, and that's why it smells <laughs> like that. The uh, front for a lolz. I think they were bumped off by Osh. <laughs> he wanted to leave Long Beach as well, so he applied to the city of Compton. The city of Compton? City. And sold his station as being a point of pride that the community could rally around being a black-owned radio station playing black music in a black part of town. Mm-hmm. And the mayor and the city council media were like, yes, <laughs> please, I please want, this. we want that. Yeah. The only opposition was, of course from KISS and KUSC Uh. who opposed having their signal in the area claiming it would interfere with theirs but it wouldn't have and basically they called them out for being racist and they were like, yeah, you're right. (laughs) Caught us. See you in 10 years. (laughs) I miss those days when people were like, yeah, that's probably what it is. (laughs) Not today. Double down.
1: (laughs) I'll show you how not racist I am. (laughs) I'm not
0: racist. So he set up shop at 3847 South Crenshaw right near his Angela's funeral home. This is so cool. They had a big window. It was like a classic. I love those. I know. No. Oh. you know who does that still? Um because KCSN records from the village at Topanga mm-hmm. and you can just walk by and, and you look in and they're in I love that. Yeah, that's really cool. Have you
1: seen Do the Right Thing? No. They're and they throw a window through the chair. Or they, yeah, whatever. they throw a window through <laughs> they the chair, they throw a chair. It through was a hard window. to do. <laughs> but they did it. <laughs> they carried it for three blocks and they threw
0: it through a chair. It's that it's like same that. thing. Yeah. Which is so cool. And it's, it's really also, nice. a, you know, it's not it wasn't nationally broadcast. This was it was the exact same thing. It was exactly the thing from that's Do the Right Thing. Like you could point at someone and to be like, hey, I know you. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I know you. You killed my wife, <laughs> and it was a Hitchcock movie. Hill didn't know anything about radio programming, so he just hired DJs who played music he liked, oh, cool. and he trusted their taste to program what they wanted because he knew that that way, at least, they would have one loyal listener, which yeah. was himself. Yeah, he wasn't stern or mean or anything, from what I can tell. But he ran a tight ship, and all of his staff had to follow his rules, no matter how stupid they were. Mm-hmm. All the DJs had to wear ties at all times. If they didn't, they were, I'll be able to hear. They would be fined five dollars if oh you. Did. Didn't wear and you know he worked at the funeral home right down the street He'd be yeah. working late at night so he'd pass by at like two in the morning and look uh-huh. in and if they weren't wearing a thing like he'd knock on the glass and be like he'd show them five fingers and oh <laughs> my god and they'd show him one what did uh, they
1: own a tie shop
0: brought to you by ties <laughs> they knew they had to pay so they you know they he kept everything in order Refined, yeah. so even though this was by all means a black radio station by and for black people none of the djs ever came out and explicitly said anything like that mm-hmm. at this time you couldn't say the word black on the radio still can I shouldn't have said that I'm getting pretty offended I'll I'll edit this you can't say white
1: on the radio (laughs) thank god
0: but then one DJ came along named Rod McGrew and Rod McGrew had a little bit of an accent he would begin his broadcast by saying this is your brother Rod McGrew and that was enough all right, oh my God. KJ, no, they didn't get in trouble. That's oh. like KJLH. People knew this wasn't like the other white radio stations. Oh, I see what you mean. This okay. was a different sort of radio station. It became the African-American voice on LA's radio waves. Cool. Don't jump to conclusions I was anymore. scared
1: what was going to happen next. I didn't want him to get in trouble. <laughs> $5, please. <laughs> they were playing, in
0: their words, not mine, straight up black music. That's okay. what they were doing. Like I said, there was R&B, gospel, smooth jazz gospel again and eventually you know r&b smooth jazz gospel uh jazz gospel, gospel r&b jazz um gaz. eventually they would play jazz fusion and hip-hop also they did news and sports they were catering to the adult african-american community not to kids or teens cool. and maybe it was because like of that. that that they didn't even start breaking even financially until 12 years in Ugh. then they finally started making a profit But once they started making money hill lost interest in the station <laughs> because he, he was just doing this as a hobby yeah and now that there are responsibilities of running a successful business it wasn't fun for him yeah. anymore. Oh, boy, don't I get that. Uh, how could you? <laughs> <laughs> you don't know the experience. Oh we're boy, still in the first work. 12 years. 12 years. 12
1: years, 12 years. So,
0: in 1979, he shopped the station around to buyers, and a lot of non-black buyers were interested, but he wanted to keep the station within the community, so he yeah. finally sold it to the only buyer he knew he could rely on, Stevie Wonder.
1: <gasps> stevie wonder like yeah. the
0: musician no not that one
1: <laughs> the different one intervisions
0: little stevie wonder little
1: stevie wonder the whatever movie po-
0: forever child prodigy stevie wonder <laughs> so he bought it for 2.2 million and he kept the spirit of the station alive and he helped it grow bigger but still be local south la yeah like that's what it is and for better or worse they gave starts to steve harvey d.l Hughley, and tavis smiley he's one of the people who supports our show you know one of those, <laughs> one of those people we are joking that because they're sex offenders uh he's one of them but Something happened in the early 90s that made them stop everything that they were doing and prove just how important they were to the community. The Rodney King riots in 1992. Mm-hmm. So the station was in Crenshaw. So when the rioting started, it was happening literally outside that big window we were so happy yeah. about. They saw as they were broadcasting exactly what was happening out on the street. One guy, he smashed open a TV repair shop across the street and he ran off with a TV, not putting together that it was a TV repair shop and all the TVs in Bro- it were broken. broken. Funny. Uh, they saw the National Guard marching past. They saw everything. But more importantly, they heard what was happening because they realized that they can't just sit there literally in the middle of everything Bro- playing yeah. Johnny Coltrane, pretending that nothing is happening. Little Johnny Coltrane. Yeah.
1: Child prodigy. <laughs> John- Johnny Coltrane, <laughs> Red and they had communications. Well, they decided
0: they're going to stop the regular broadcast. They're uh-huh. dumping all the commercials, and for three days they became just a talk radio station wow. discussing what was happening in the community. And they started taking calls from the locals because they hadn't, nobody had electricity, or they, nobody yeah. knew what was going on. So they wanted to find out like what grocery stores are open, what gas station isn't blown up, yeah. which schools are going to be open, and it was like parents trying to find their kids, oh, wow. and also you could just call in and they let people vent about what was happening. So they they call in and they just say what they were feeling. Some people were angry. Some people, they talked out of crimes that they were about to commit. And yeah. some people would just call and cry. Like it was a therapeutic thing wow. for the community. And they had people like Jesse Jackson and Ice-T and Barry White come on to take calls and try to find nonviolent solutions to the community's frustrations. The other mainstream stations, like the news and everything, they were just showing the looting and the beatings. But KJLH was listening to the voices of the people that were both trying to hide from all this or stop it, but also taking part in it. So they they got like a, a real panoramic
1: vision of, of what exactly
0: was happening and why it was happening and it was really important what they did the the djs they slept in the studio for those three Jeez. days and listeners brought them food and they parked their cars on the sidewalk in front of the building yeah. for protection so that it wouldn't, so that they wouldn't throw a window through yeah. the chair <laughs> or um, chair
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> this is do the right thing
1: oh wait i'm just and then spike lee came mm-hmm, in does any uh of that still exist any of those uh recordings yeah yeah no yeah. They're,
0: they're readily available really? it's really cool oh, fantastic in 1993 they won a peabody award for the three days of coverage the other people who won it were Roseanne and Seinfeld which in my opinion did just as much for the ride <laughs> that legacy of the station lives on with Stevie Wonder's Houseful of toys which collects toys for low income children mm-hmm. they collected a ton of supplies to send to victims of Hurricane Katrina I don't know where else to fit this in so I'll, I put it here they won an NAACP image award in the late 90s they moved the station to 161 North La Brea Avenue in Inglewood so they don't have the big window if they, uh, if no. they have a window it's small it's <laughs> Maybe, like a porthole you could th- Yeah, you- <laughs> they learned their lesson <laughs> <laughs> you could throw like an ottoman Through it maybe And then they cater to a younger audience now But they're the only R&B station With a continuous live And local air staff And they're only one of two Commercial radio stations in LA That are black owned and operated Wow It's a good station too Yeah I mean, no, We we're, were listening to it When listening we were to it. getting ready On Sunday I was like I should I should listen to some of this And it was all gospel music no. <laughs> And I was born again And it sounds pretty interesting <laughs> I started getting ideas I don't you know want to convert Maybe convert to gospel music <laughs> Maybe Satan isn't that
1: great I take everything I said back All the sacrifice is. Can I take them back? I'm gonna be doing the story of Fat Burger. Oh baby. We this, almost went there tonight and then I we know. chose to get Mexican food instead.
0: <laughs> There's a lot of food places and it all makes me very hungry yeah i had
1: to do a part where i was described i'll get to it but i was like oh god i gotta leave i gotta i want to go eat it so fat burger was the creation of one woman from texas lovey louise yancey she was born in Bastrop, texas in january of 1912 she's one of eight kids she moved to los angeles in the mid when her mid-40s no in the mid-40s sorry
0: coincidentally her mid-40s yeah
1: in the mid-40s with her daughter they came from tucson so we're doing something in tucson i couldn't find too much about that yancey
0: left her home in tucson arizona i hope that's the song is about fat burger um it's the fat burger theme song we all know it we all know it. let's all sing it let's all sing it together come on audience (laughs) (laughs) okay you
1: don't know it either great that's just how they react to anything we do. Silence. Yeah, we've been there. Um, <laughs> Lovey Yancey opened up the small three-stool hamburger stand, known then as Mr. Fatburger. With Mr.
0: Char- Burger. Mr.
1: Fatburger with a gentleman named Charles Simpson in 1947 on Western Boulevard near Jefferson, also by USC. I don't know uh,
0: why I keep waiting for you to say that someone involved in its name is something like Charles Fatburger.
1: Let me get there. Lovey settled on the hamburgers because they were the fastest-selling sandwich in America. She had, at that point, already operated a restaurant in Tucson. Since LA is the city of dreams, she figured she could just make burgers. Bur- Burgers would make her famous her partner in all this, been there <laughs> I thought you know these onion rings are gonna take me to the top baby her <laughs> partner as I said was Charles Simpson he worked for a construction company and reportedly but not confirmed built the original mr fat burger shack out of scrap metal that might be a fact Jack <laughs> she settled on the name mr- this type of cheese they used so I eat scrap metal as cheese uh, <laughs> she settled on the name mr fat burger because she wanted to convey that this burger was substantial and it could be a meal in itself and and I
0: honestly slyly hint that it might be made of human
1: <laughs> just a nod. And a <laughs> I honestly prefer Mr. Fatburger as the title just oh, because yeah. it sounds like an aristocrat with a heavy mustache, like a guy who a, like a lot of weight during the Depression, so it's just like a sign of wealth. Like, oh, Mr. Fatburger. <laughs> oh. Mr.
0: Fatburger, your chariot's here.
1: I also read in a really awful Forbes but article. cherry. <clears throat> I also read in an aw- he's I'm reading it eats a lot. <laughs> I also read in an awful Forbes article that she named it Fat Burger because that was her boyfriend's nickname at the time. Oh. Don't know if that's true oh, or not. Boy. The, the the article was really What part of the body written. is the burger? The same one that Jolly <laughs> Roll Morton is part of. <laughs>
0: the Jelly Rolls connected to the Fat Burger <laughs> and the Fat Burger is connected to the Mr. Big.
1: Who do you think you are? Tell me. Presenting Mr. and Mrs. Fat Burger Esquire. It's hard <laughs> to tell if it was an instant hit or not, but it certainly made money. Enough money over the next 5 years she was able to open up five other locations in the area in 1952 where'd you say the first one was again it was on western near jefferson what area that's like that's like exposition park yeah. it's near usc yeah 1952 lovey decided that the mister needed to go and if you're wondering if i mean charles simpson or the mister in the title then you're both right <laughs> please mr fatburger is my father call me fatburger simpson and nancy parted ways but I, I also read that he took control of the other five location while she managed the original stand mm. that's not really parting ways but okay the business continued gaining popularity and growing and in nineteen sixty 73 she decided to build a new fat burger spot on la cienega in beverly hills and i imagine it's the one that still stands in that plaza across from the beverly center and lovey wasn't in a castle sending drones out to cook burgers she was a regular fixture there she was a tireless worker she could work these insane like 17 to 18 hour shifts at the stand behind the counter seven days a God. week and as the popularity of the burgers grew there were requests that it stay open later and later and later her explanation for this behavior that she just wanted to make sure that everything was done properly which is something i'm sure you can understand i
0: uh, i don't get what you're saying i think maybe this podcast should stop being called mr la meekly nah. and should just be called fat meekly because you're fat
1: <laughs> and you can't work it off um, and because she had spots in south central and beverly hills her celebrity clientele was vast i keep reading these two and it makes me laugh
0: the uh, red carpet's made of ketchup don't he, ignore me.
1: <laughs> I will not be silenced. I just bit my tongue really hard. People, <laughs> much like a fat burger. No. Oh, you brought me two fat burgers. <laughs>
0: the widow fat burger. No,
1: people like Red Fox and Ray Charles would stop in to say hi to Lovey. Really? Yeah. I would love to eat a hamburger with a Red Fox. I would just I would love it.
0: <laughs> you know, I think Red Fox comes up in my next one, actually.
1: Is it Red Fox? Yeah, he's a business. I almost went an entire page without talking about the burger. So let's go ahead and do that. Oh my God, I'm not ready for this. Every meal is cooked to order just the way you want it. All burgers are custom-made masterpieces. <laughs> what you do, you do what you want. What you do to
0: the burger is, is none, none of none our, our business. business. <laughs>
1: Once you pay for it, it is yours to do whatever. You do what you want, and you just pick how fat you want it to be. They use the freshest ingredients and traditional Morbid. cooking methods. No heat lamps or microwaves. They use fresh, never-frozen lean beef, chicken, turkey, veggie burgers, sandwiches. They have hand-scooped real ice cream milkshakes. Really, Homemade from scratch onion rings. Fat burger bills itself as the last great American burger stand it's true
0: it's, it's absolutely true it's true i've checked the documents the rest are all owned by taiwan
1: <laughs> by 1980 lovey began to grow the business through local franchising and by the end of 1985 the chain had over 15 franchise sites throughout southern california the following year 1986 yancey's fat burger franchise was named number five among the fastest growing burger franchises <laughs> chains by entrepreneur magazine in its annual franchise 500 list and it was trailing behind mcdonald's burger king and wendy she built this all herself and charles Sampson, but mostly her uh, in 1990 she took a backseat at the age of 78 and sold her million dollar franchise to a British record producer and an investment group, Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder, yeah. uh, but she retained control of the original property on Western because she knows she what she's doing. Place. She loves that place over the next 15 years. 15 more Fat Burgers opened up, and celebrities started to step up to the plate to manage them because Fat Burger was not only a successful business, it was also a cool cultural icon. When the BC boys came to LA, they would go to Fat Burger. <laughs> Ice Cube rapped about getting burgers at 2 a.m. from a Fat Burger, and it was a good day. Uh, <laughs> I our can't old Believe it. Our old deceased pal, notorious B.I.G. sang about taking the lady out to Fatburger. It's weird. He comes up
0: in, mine else, in my next one. Well, Ice T was in my last one. What's going on here? Uh, <laughs> Whose story are you no. telling?
1: I'm doing a Kaiser <laughs> associate thing. Where I'm just patching a bunch <laughs> of stuff together because I didn't do research.
0: And then Microphone McGee came in. <laughs> and...
1: This was a place that was getting built up through hip hop and also TVs and movies. It made an appearance in Sanford and Son. I'm really curious about that. We know Red Fox it liked it. Yeah. It came out in Fast and Fierce. David Letterman included Fatburger in his top ten list of things he'd miss most about leaving Los Angeles. Celebrities started wanting to open up franchises. Montel Williams owns five in Denver. Kanye no. West has the Chicago region fatburger. Really? Queen Latifah has one in Miami. Pharrell Williams opened up the first location in New York. And former Baltimore Ravens, Orlando Brown, also bought rights to the open Fat Burgers in Washington in 2007. Magic Johnson's- Wait, won- his
0: name is Orlando Brown? Yeah. I thought that was a sports team.
1: No, the Ravens are the t- team. I
0: thought you were listing like his whole- He's
1: a former the- Orlando for Browns. The, <laughs> former player for the his Baltimore Ravens. His name is Ravens. Baltimore Raven from the <laughs> <Baltimore> Orlando <laughs> Browns. <laughs> Orlando <laughs> <Raven>. <laughs> but he's Baltimore raven god that's a cool name that'd be a great name yeah, he, he, almost
0: as good as mr fatburger
1: those are two villains in a sherlock holmes story <laughs>
0: Please, mr fatburger is my father i'm baltimore ravens
1: <laughs> the case of baltimore Ravens. <laughs> magic johnson sponsored a 5.3 million dollar management buyout with the help of janet jackson david spade share and darren star who is the creator of sexton city speaking uh, of mr big in 2003 though magic johnson sold as a majority stake for six million dollars to portland oregon well, did they, based... they
0: serve majority stake also
1: yeah yeah it's uh it's a lot though it's the majority majority. of the room. He sold his stake to a a group called Fog Cutter Capital Group who now own Fatburger and have currently 93 locations in the US and Canada. The man who runs Fog Cutter is Andrew Weinerhorn, and to quote the awful Forbes article, his most notable action as of 2007 was pocketing $4.6 million of (laughs) Fatburger's parent company's dwindling cash pile as salary. Mm -hmm. While doing time in federal prison, he pleaded guilty to charges of paying an illegal gratuity and filing a false tax return. He's also delinquent on $1 million loan from the company so we'll see what happens there.
0: And we think he stole some onion rings
1: i'm watching you widerhorn as for the original stand it was never designated as a los angeles historic cultural monument and i don't know what happened because i read that she retained control of the original property but it seems that the property was sold not too long ago the new owner plans to develop low income housings on a site which is 3001 to 3023 southwestern avenue the actual shack is still on the property and cannot be torn down but must be rehabbed and incorporated into the new development so low income it- housing site is imminent the deal disclosed for three million dollars so there's going to be a low income income housing complex built on western with the original hamburger (laughs) fused into it so and that's the one
0: that he made out of like scrap Scrap metal metal.
1: it's it's been updated since then but it's still the original sand it looks small from a picture a lovely antsy died of pneumonia sadly Mm. on january of 2008 at the age of 96 she built a franchise from a scrap metal shack in south la into a multi-million dollar business she is a true entrepreneur she also established a 1.7 million dollar endowment at the city of hope national medical center in duarte in 1986 for research into sickle cell Mm. anemia. Mm. She created the endowment in dedication to her twenty two year old grandson, Daron Farrell, who had died of uh, the disease three years earlier. Lovey Anti, Godspeed, I really want a fat burger.
0: Yeah. I had no idea that that, I mean, all the people you listed as having franchises, it's majority African American. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that it was not just started by an African American person, but still like still it's, this it, means something to it's the being stirred community.
1: by people yeah. in the community. It's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Do you like Fat Burger? Yeah. I, I always stirred away from it We, we It's
0: more expensive than That's Internet. why we always
1: stirred away Because in high school There was the one on Vermont In like Hollywood And we were like We should get Fatburger And we walk in like Oh we have like 40 cents Like we're not <laughs> getting Fatburger And then we went to Fatburger together You did got we? a coupon I got a salad We went to the one in uh, North Hollywood We
0: did? Yeah. No 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 That wasn't Fatburger That was the habit
1: Oh, you're right. That was the yeah. habit. Okay, I didn't. I did get a salad at the habit. <laughs> I didn't get a salad at burger. I was embarrassed to say that. And yeah, then so, come on, they probably have salad.
0: They don't have salad. They brain. have
1: lettuce. They probably have salad. <laughs>
0: don't give me a bunch of lettuce and call it a salad. salad. Just give me a lot of lettuce. Just the name fat burger makes me hungry. Yeah. Hearing the name, I feel like it's going to be really juicy and like really flavorful. My hands are going
1: to be kind of soggy at the end of it. Yeah. Oh, I like maybe. a lot of. I like a lot of sauce in my food. You know what I mean? I just want
0: the natural meat juice. Let me finish. On my chin. <laughs> <laughs> I've only been to a fat burger like twice, maybe. Yeah.
1: They're popular for having no commercials. You know what I mean? Like, they're yeah, not as I've never seen a. Because I've, you know, kind of I've seen like Carl's Jr. Commercial. commercials probably my entire no, life. I've never and seen I've, one. And I've probably been to like Carl's Jr. like Are four times. Are they sexual? Times. I've never seen one. Are they overly sexual and they charge too much for a burger? And you're like, why am I here? This is fast food. Why am I paying $8 for a burger? I thought this was sex.
0: I thought I was, <laughs> was coming like here for sex. Se- <laughs> I thought I was buying really messy sex with a burger.
1: And it's everything we like. It's like diner-esque. Mr. It's got Mr. Fatburger. Mr. Fecker, please. It's got jukebox. It's got hand scoop milkshakes.
0: Well, I think their thing is that they charge you more, but you like, instead of like, you want a hamburger, that's this much. You want a hamburger with this and this on it, that's this much. Here, it's like, it's all this much. You could get as little or as much as you want yeah. put
1: on top of it. That's what I understand that's fat a, burger to be. That's what it's fat with is everything in it. Yeah, it's yeah. fat
0: with ego is what it is. I it's like fat it. with the hubris of you <laughs> trying to put hot dogs on it. Fine.
1: What do you want in it? Yes. So do you want, yeah, just all of it, just to keep doing it until you run out of stuff? I want $8 on it. Close the store. I want everything in between two buns. Where does the fat burger
0: end and I begin? (laughs) That's the question I want to be asking once I have served my fat (laughs) burger. Well, that was delicious. Keep it going. This next one's going to make you hungry also. If there's one thing I like more than eating fried chicken, it's Mm -hmm. eating waffles. And if there's one thing I like more than eating both of those together, it's giving a concise oral history of them. Oh, yeah. Fried chicken. Where did it come from? What came first, the fried chicken and the fried an <laughs> Did the fried chicken cross the road to, I don't
1: know, get back out of the fryer? All of this is classic L.A. Meekly, fumbling for just a start. You could just start, but we just fumble the ball.
0: But what you know is that there's something there. Why'd the fried chicken cross the road to get to the other fry? Mine was better. (laughs) So it started in the Middle Ages with chicken fricassee, which was a fried chicken in a sauce.
1: I didn't know I was going to be taken this far back. (laughs) The only way to go forward is to only go back. You only really love origin stories.
0: (laughs) (laughs) the chicken would you believe it it got bit by a fried spider i couldn't believe it and then fryer man came i want to drown and blame it on you so you go to jail for this (laughs) i don't want you to get away with doing this the courts are on my side.
1: (laughs) Uh, Do I need to explain why?
0: (laughs) So it was this fried chicken that was in a sauce. So once cookbooks started coming around, this became a common recipe. And guess who was doing all the cooking in the kitchens of the southern United States come the 17 and 1800s? African slaves. Mm -hmm. So they started making versions of chicken fricassee, frying the chicken with the supplies and methods they had. Eventually they stopped doing the sauce that went on top and then that was fried chicken, like we know it. And then it became popular when the Civil War hit, and the frying process allowed the chicken to keep longer, so it became popular food among the southern soldiers, Mm -hmm. who were decidedly unpopular with the people that were making (laughs) this food for them. Waffles, on the other hand, also came from the Middle Ages, from bakers experimenting with making new types of communion wafers, but they realized they were too good for church, so they started selling them on the street, and they became popular street food, and that became more and more ornate, with toppings and stuff like that, you know, put a Darth Vader in it.
1: I don't know why I assumed it's from Canada, Canada, but I think it's covered in syrup and it's nice.
0: They were brought to America by these waffles.
1: These waffles! These waffles! They're coming to my country and taking over
0: my French toast! My American (laughs) French toast! Nobody
1: eats pancakes anymore!
0: (laughs) They were brought to America by the pilgrims, and then when Dutch immigrants started coming over, they became popular on the East Coast. The first known instance of chicken and waffles came in the 1600s when the Pennsylvania Dutch started putting boiled, pulled chicken on top of their precious waffles and covering it in creamy gravy Movie, which sounds about as gross as everything else I expected that they were eating back then but yeah. the chicken and waffles as we know it came in 1938 at the Wells Supper Club in Harlem so this place was popular hangout for all the jazz musicians coming out of the clubs late at night again, yeah, jazz, Nat King Cole baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, pop, 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 pop. Uh, ooh, heroin <laughs> people like Nat King Cole and Sammy Davis Jr. Sammy Davis? Sammy Davis Jr. were coming but they were coming to a weird time so it was too late for dinner but too early for breakfast so they started making something that was right in between Put a fried chicken on a waffle. Beautiful. You got it.
1: It sounds like it's hard as a joke and people are like, no, no, I want it again.
0: I want this every night. Every night. Because that's what we do in this time. We find something we like and we eat it every day. And now they had fried chicken on a waffle. All problem solved for all jazz musicians forever. But that's all the East Coast and the Far East Coast, Europe. Who cares? Because LA is the place that finally did chicken and waffles right. And by that, I mean the same thing, but more popular. (laughs) In 1975, a Harlem native named Herb Hudson left his job. He left his job as a foreman at General Motors in Detroit, and he came to Los Angeles to follow his dream that everybody comes here with opening up a chicken and waffles place in Hollywood. And he did just that at 1514 North Gower Street. Is
1: that the first one?
0: Yeah. So even though this guy's still alive, there's almost nothing out there about him or the early history of the restaurant. We know that the place is named after a guy he came to LA with whose first name was Roscoe, but I have no idea what the guy's last name is and who he was to Hudson and everyone claims not to remember even though this guy has to still be alive also.
1: Yeah. It's named after the guy that he came with.
0: Yeah. This guy who was important enough to name a restaurant after and he can't even remember his first oh name or his boy. last name. Yeah, I know we already insinuated Fat Burgers made of people. You might want to... Can
1: uh, we one. do like a serial-like show where we yeah. like try to solve Where's a R- mystery it's of gonna figure be like, out who Roscoe is? Uh, yeah. It's
0: like finding um, Russell Simmons or no, <laughs> whichever <that's not> one. <laughs> <laughs> Another proud supporter of LA <laughs> We also don't know why Hudson apparently had strong connections to a lot of Motown singers but we do know that he exploited that to drum up publicity for his new restaurant and it hey. worked perfectly he got people like Natalie Cole to come Ooh, eat there and there.
1: Really? Why? Yeah, she signed her up for something. For a record contract? Yeah, record contract. My mom is a Motown uh, record <laughs> producer.
0: Betty Gordy. That's my mom. <laughs> the other person that they had coming in a lot, Red Fox. Huh? He's back. He's uh, hungry and
1: he doesn't like to cook. Clearly. <laughs> clearly he doesn't uh, like to cook at home. Got a
0: lot of money to throw around. <laughs> so Hudson got celebrities to mention it to the press in interviews and that got people interested and that made it a hot spot. And the thing that's significant about Roscoe's is that it was by all means a black business, but it became a destination for everybody. It wasn't hard in the 30s where probably 99% of the people that came in were African American this was the center of Hollywood in the 70s so Roscoe's became a hit across the board it was open at a time when there was a revolution for African Americans embracing their African American culture and their food so it became a special place among the African American community but the celebrity backing gave it a push that broke it through to the white community as well Mm -hmm. which is why they're credited with being the commercial creators of the dish even though it's kind of offensive to think it's only commercial because white people like it (laughs) but like I said it was and is a meaningful place to the African-American community. It's mentioned in the song Going Back to Cali by Notorious B.I.G. It's mentioned in Jackie Brown, made by a white guy. They've given money to local black sports teams and events. They've had breakfasts with high school football teams from rival schools that had ties to rival gangs, and they brought them in to come eat there together. Really? Yeah. Politicians have paid their respect to Roscoe's either sincerely or just to have a press conference there to try to get the black vote. Nixon and Reagan ate there, but it wasn't until Obama came in 2011 that they renamed the special he got after him. That's pretty nice. It's three wings and a waffle, potato salad, and fries.
1: They didn't want to name something after Richard Nixon? That's weird. C- could
0: I get the Nixon? I steal it, and then I deny it. <laughs>
1: that's what I want to that's eat. That's what I want to
0: eat. And then the Reagan one, it's jelly beans, and it's also at a different restaurant.
1: <laughs> I offer everyone food in the trickle-down sort of thing, and yeah. then by the time it gets to you, there's not really a lot. It's mostly for me. It's whatever I don't want. Yeah. Which I want everything, though. I don't get trickle-down in economics. Go ahead. Tear down this waffle? I don't know. Nailed it. And then that's what he did with the digestive system. So Oh,
0: Hudson made chicken and waffles popular to not just one part of a city, but to an entire city. And yeah. that's why people come from all over the world to eat there and why they're up there with In-N-Out and in Pink's as like a quintessential LA place to eat. Yeah. Yeah. There have been imposters. In the early 2000s, a place opened up in New York called Roscoe's House of Chicken and Waffles with two, two S's.
1: You foolish fool. It's well, like all the Tommy's ripoffs. Like yeah, Tommy's yeah. with an I-E.
0: But they had the same logo also. But Oh, <laughs> foolish. Hudson didn't care because he wasn't interested in New York. Clearly. But then they opened open up in Chicago. And that was cutting into Hudson's turf. So he sued them and they had to change the name to Chicago's House of Chicken and Waffles. That's fair. Mr. Chicago's Mr. House Mr. of... Mr. Waffles. Mr. Roscoe's. I'm
1: sure it is just as fine.
0: Mr. Roscoe's dead. Yeah. <laughs> sure fine. The secretive nature of Herb Hudson made it hard to learn much about this place, but it made it easy for him to take part in crooked business practices until 2013 when Roscoe's was sued by an employee for racial discrimination he- saying that the Latino managers were favoring the Latino employees and also. So sexual harassment and the restaurant had to pay $3.2 million, which drove them into serious financial troubles, which led them to file for bankruptcy in 2016, $7 million in debt. The same year Hudson was forced out of the company because the judge didn't believe he could run the company in accordance to the law. It turned out they were breaking immigration laws. They also weren't paying taxes. They were missing a lot of accounting records and Hudson had been transferring Roscoe's money into his other businesses. On the plus side, there's seven locations you can eat at and your money won't be going to, into the mystery bank accounts of a man. I don't know anything about
1: <laughs> not just you a lot of people don't seem to know a lot about
0: them <laughs> so that's Ross guys. have you ever been to
1: one before because I haven't
0: I haven't either i I'd I like
1: to go I always hear it's expensive so I'm always like okay I'll save up and go and I never do
0: It. Is, I think it is kind of well because I didn't even I happened to get off the freeway at Gower only okay. a few months ago and I was like that's that's
1: it that's the place it's right there we used to pass by all the time because that's where my school bus would go mm. down that street so I, was, I always see it and people would be talking about it but I never no one ever invited me but you like dinos yeah I like Dinah's chicken a lot I don't like dinos you don't like dinos it bummed me out there's I know. a lot of things that I'm like he's gonna love this and he don't I'm like well I don't know him and maybe I don't want to <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the man I thought I knew I, I like Dinah's a lot that was like a family yeah. oh it's Friday we're gonna be renting movies from Blockbuster we're gonna go to Dinah's
0: and watch them there <laughs> I was really disappointed by Dinah's I really well, again I really wanted to like Dinah's I really but wanted to want like to know the, where the, Spider the Spider-Man movie. Came yeah, from, yeah. I wanted to know how do they get bit by the radioactive
1: Prior. We should give it a second chance. I'll I want to go to Roscoe's. Okay. We'll I, want
0: Roscoe's. I want Roscoe's. I want Roscoe's. And I want to go after church on a Sunday when oh, there's gonna nice be no clothes. wait. <laughs> <laughs> the lines are crazy. Yeah. Like it, just from driving by that one time, it was that being that crazy. just kind of
1: builds the frenzy in my in my head of yeah. how good it is. If yeah. I see a line, I'm like, oh, it's gotta be good. I gotta yeah. yeah, I gotta wait in that line too. I hate waiting at restaurants outside. Places like uh the pantry go fast. Pantry does go fast,
0: but then on the flip side of that, I'm so nervous while I'm eating like someone wants someone this table does. and they they, they want to get me the out of here. The people in
1: the, they're outside the yeah, window. They're, they're looking you. in, watching you like, you don't want dessert. I well, want lunch. Why are you leaning back? Uh, keep eating. I want to sit down. We're only in town for another 45 minutes.
0: <laughs> they're calling waiters over to give us the check.
1: <laughs> oh, you can't see me. I'm mouthing the words, he's ready and pointing. <laughs> he's ready. He's ready. And now I'm pointing.
0: He's pointing also. To be honest, I've only had the combination of fried chicken and waffles maybe five times in my whole life, but it's so, per- it's really, per- like, at a certain point in the morning, like, I'll wake up and I'll want something really sweet because yeah. I have diabetes. And then, but then after, like, <laughs> An hour I'll be like, I don't I want like savory food now. Yeah. But then I can't not order sweet things at a place. So this combination oh, <laughs> this combination of you're gonna have fried chicken and you're gonna have a waffle you can put syrup on. That's that so that's nice. wonderful.
1: Yeah, that's the one meal in my head that it makes me wish I could still drink milk because it sounds yeah. really good. I don't know why what i do like you, you're
0: gonna drink milk with your chicken and waffles. Yeah,
1: cold milk. Oh, God, with realize, ice in it. I didn't realize Greg was white now. No. man is around the rim. He's a white boy in a white <laughs> world. His name is Greg Gonzalez. <laughs> <laughs> so this next one i'm going to talk about uh-huh. like i said before i was trying to figure out the name of this movie theater i don't know if it was the new beverly before it became a new beverly i don't think so but i was looking and i fell in this rabbit hole and then i discovered this next company that i'm going to talk about and i had walked into an exhibit of theirs at ucla when i was there with my girlfriend when we were walking around and they had a Woo-hoo! whole dis- i was like oh i should write this down so i could do an episode later and i completely forgot until it was brought up <laughs> and i'm like i have all these pictures still i'm gonna be talking about the lincoln motion picture company don't get mad at me but the story starts in omaha nebraska uh, yeah. In 1916, Boy. sorry,
0: White Greg really wants to bring it back to Omaha. Oh, Nebraska!
1: It's so <laughs> nice. Um, so we have two brothers, the Johnsons, George and Noble, who hailed from Colorado Springs. Noble. One of their classmates in the school. Noble of, Johnson. That's no, a good that's name. That's a good. Oh, that's an honest name yeah. of an honest man. Noble George man. Johnson. They came from Colorado Springs. They were cowboys. They worked on a ranch when they grew up, I believe. One of Noble's classmates in his schooling years of his life, you might know him. He had a thousand faces, and his name was Lon Chaney. Really? Yeah. In Nebraska? No, Colorado Springs. It was Lon Chaney who helped Noble navigate his way into the film industry cheney's exact capacity i'm not quite sure of but it was with this help that johnson was able to get work in the early years of films and his light complexion allowed him to play several different race roles he played native americans arabians italians mexicans american cowboys exposed to too much sun which is a thing i read in the paper i'm not trying to thing i read in an old paper boy oh boy i didn't like writing i don't like reading it but i (laughs) read it but pretty quickly after seeing into the giant machine that is filmmaking saw that there were scarce opportunities for african americans in the film industry george had a different experience after high school he was sent by his father to the east to the Hampton Institute in Virginia, which was a school predominantly for Native Americans and black people. The Hampton Institute was established after the Civil War in response to the need for education for freed slaves. This environment, along with many other social and political restrictions, gave him the commitment that he needed to strive for equality. It's one of those progressive schools. So now the two Johnsons are on their separate paths, which both led them to understand that there's a need for social reform. I got a need. A need need for for social social reform. reform. Civil Rights Beach Party! (laughs) Now to better illustrate the importance of what the Johnson brothers did we have to talk about a landmark film that came out in 1915 called The Birth of a Nation from D.W. Griffith. If you're wondering what Birth of a Nation is about, let's go ahead and say that its previous title was The Klansman. The original writer was a white southerner, surprised, named Thomas Dixon, who seemed obsessed with the idea that newly freed slaves were attacking white women and only the, only the KKK could stop them and send the country right again. Of course, that is dog, S word. the Times, even then, knew it. it. It surprises me. This story surprises me how everyone in 1916 was sort of on the side of black people. So when Birth of a Nation came out, people were like, you know this is like not cool right LA Times wrote this whole thing about how that's backward, like backwards thinking yeah. and that's the, like just the kind of wrong thing that this country needs right now and how that's a southern thing uh,
0: <laughs> that's backwards and wrong that belongs in the, the south. south that belongs
1: in the south whatever year you still think it is take off that union uniform the union's good yeah you're right what's the, the other confederates. one confederates yeah.
0: the confederates one the ones who are eating fried chicken that's how you know that's how you
1: know that they're, they're good yeah. the, oh those are the bad ones <laughs> damn it I keep mixing it up so Dixon was a novelist and a playwright and after the Klansman novel was published he produced a play of it too but there was a problem with thomas dixon's work it was popular not just with the white south but with what was being referred to as the young north which i don't know if that means new states or young people in the north but this work drove the young north to commit violent acts against african-americans the play arrives in Alley in 1908 and i'm very happy to report that it was protested heavily upon it was protested heavily in philadelphia and the police had to come and make sure the protesters didn't storm the place their argument was that the play called for the lynching of african Americans and you know it really did eventually the mayor of philly had to have the production halted when it got to LA, many african-american churches signed a petition warning the mayor of the time which was arthur harper that the Klansmen would provoke a race riot. the play would provoke a race riot. And mayor harper decided to respond to this warning by saying i'll keep an eye on these rascals and allow the show to go on and it was such a spirited performance that near the end of the play's run a white mob nearly lynched a black man who had been convicted of rape before the police had to stop the mob so the mob mentality was definitely in the air people were being influenced by this vicious propaganda. One of the people who influenced by this play was Kentucky Board director D.W. Griffith, Mm -hmm. son of an ex-Confederate colonel. Uh, He was so struck by this and the way I want to strike his... Oh, he was so struck by this... The way
0: I want to strike his... Oh, excuse me. excuse
1: me. He was struck by this, the way I want to strike his head with a pipe. He was so struck that he purchased the rights to the film and even worked with Dixon on adapting it for the big screen. But it was 1914 so the screen was nothing. (laughs) Dixon and Griffith came to Los Angeles together in 1914 to film the adaptation because they heard that Southern California was was a fine place with plenty of various terrains to film a picture it's 1914 it's like the machine was still in, in the works and thus racist ass Tommy Dixon and racist ass dw griffith began production on a movie that is still talked about 100 years later as the book bound for freedom black los angeles and jim crow era puts it the birth of hollywood aesthetic was thus linked with dixon's white supremacy message <laughs> luckily there were plenty of people that knew that this was dog feces uh, our old friend charlotta bass who run california eagle and a lot of other community leaders from the los angeles race papers the la sunday Forum, the Ministers Alliance, and the local branch of the NAACP, which is only six years old at the time, they set out to try to prevent this movie from being made. It didn't work, but they managed to get Griffith to cut some of the more vicious scenes. <laughs> they also succeeded in making allies with city officials over the matter of getting this movie stopped. So, even though neither party could do a lot about this, there was no legal means for blocking it, they ended up grouping together, like for later things. They were like, they, ha- they had built this alliance. Mm. So, they on
0: failed, but we could try again. They, they
1: failed, but the bridges we made might help us later on. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, on well, February 8th, 1915, the well. clans premieres in Los Angeles at the Clunes Theater on 5th and Main where the Rosalind stands under the new title Birth of a Nation and it's almost instantly popular critical acclaim everyone thinks it's so real well, Thomas Dixon had a friend who worked for the government from Princeton his name was Woodrow Wilson and he was the president of the United States at the time <laughs> President Woodrow Wilson agreed to have a screening of Birth of a Nation in the White House and went on record to say the film it is like writing history with lightning and my only regret is that it's all so terribly true <laughs> millions saw the film in 19. 15 and as well as being one of the most offensive movies ever made it still implements film techniques used today like long shots and close-ups and fade-ins and low angle shots so we have to keep talking about it the way i have to talk about roman polanski you don't have to chinatown's really good also a big fan of the podcast he uh, loves it have you seen birth of a nation parts of that never sat yeah, through it parts not of it a too. big fan
0: well why not it's exactly that in film classes,
1: they're like here we go this yeah. is
0: bad don't learn anything from this movie but this is this was the start of Big it, movies.
1: Uh, it's not the only time a close up has ever been used, so I think we could stop talking about it. But it was the first time. Close up on klansman getting a rope ready. <laughs> For what? Oh no. Awful. So there were unintentional good things that came from Birth of a Nation. The backlash against the film unified several groups and civic leaders. The city council, the city of Turner, and the police department all joined up with black leaders to try to prevent screenings. But another benefit was that it revealed a gap in the new art form. There was no proper black representation. So now we get back to the Johnson brothers. Noble was in Hollywood under contract with Universal Pictures, which was kind of new, but he was noted that there were not many serious roles for black men. He was actually one in a handful of black actors who can get regular work along with other actors like Madame Saul Tawan, George Reed, Ernie Morrison, who was a child actor. I think he was one of the little rascals. Was he Alfalfa? No. Keep at it. Name all of them. Alfalfa. Froggy. Ducky. (laughs) Ducky. Uh, I like that we jumped at the same one and only one of us is right. I don't know which one because it could be either one. My favorite rascal. (laughs) Noble knew that there were more opportunities, but he was starting to realize that he had to make those opportunities. George was in Oklahoma working at one of the regions. Oklahoma. George went to Oklahoma and was working... (laughs) in one of the region's early black newspapers. It started in 1906. And then after that, he moved to Tulsa and produced the Tulsa Guide, another early black regional newspaper, and then became the first black clerk at the Tulsa Post Office. They called Jackie Robinson a race man. These guys were also race men. They were doing things to move their community forward. Mm-hmm. So the next year after Birth of a Nation was released, 1916, the Johnson Brothers start the Lincoln Motion Picture Company on January 20th with capitalization of $75,000. It was first run out of Omaha, but then it moved to Los Angeles where Normal could make the films and George, who still worked in omaha as a mailman could produce them and then direct the company's bookings from afar which seemed hard because it wasn't like you could email each other like you you had four days (laughs) yeah that's four day like delay and Um. action now it starts. <laughs> so they ran a production office on Central Avenue at 1121 Central, which is near 12th Street, right outside of downtown. I read somewhere on the internet, it's unconfirmed, but they would have meetings on Central Avenue on the balcony of Smith's Drugstore, which might have been the, this location. I can't find out. The aforementioned Dr. James Smith, the druggist, was the treasurer because the Johnson brothers were not the only people in this endeavor. They had Dr. Smith, who was another actor. Uh, There's another actor and a friend of Noble's named Clarence A. Brooks. He was the secretary and a fellow named Dudley A. Brooks. Are they related? Probably. <laughs> Uh, I just got that right now. Is everybody here brothers? You could only get in if you had a brother with you. Yeah. Warner Brothers. Uh, they also had an attorney named uh, Wiles O. Tyler. The only white guy they had on staff that's was- a, That's a good name. Wiles O. Tyler. Wiles O. Tyler. Wiles O. Tyler's here. <laughs> There's a white man named Harry Grant, the only white guy they had on staff, and he was a camera operator, another employee at Universal, and was friends with mobile. The films were shot in a studio on Tennessee Avenue, which is in West Hollywood somewhere. It's by the Four or Five, but uh, or 5 wasn't there at the time. They said- <laughs> the Four or 405,
0: but it was in Roman numerals back then.
1: This was one of the first independent film companies to make black films with black financing for the community, from the community, for Black audiences, offering Black actors and actresses some of the silent eras few opportunities to play non-servant, non-violent, non-punchline roles. Their film in 1916 was a movie short called The Realization of a Negro's Ambition, which was the title, which was about a Tuskegee Institute graduate who goes to California and finds love from a lady. He achieves this through heroism, virtue, and plain old American, pull yourself up by your bootstraps gumption. The story is about a young engineering graduate at Tuskegee, like I said, who leaves his family farm, tries hand in the oil fields of los angeles which is a veiled autobiography probably turned away because he is black the young man rescues a white woman in a runaway carriage i love that that used to be a motif <laughs> It in happened. Movies. they had to go somewhere they had wheels and no brakes she turns out to be the daughter of the oil company owner who offers the young man a job with the company's oil exploration team later the young engineer realizes that his parents farmland shows oil possibilities and spoiler
0: yeah, this is come on I might the company this.
1: owner bankrolls the exploratory drilling test that eventually proved successful you can't spoil a movie that there's no <laughs> left up. <laughs> no, you can. I and, saw it in it my turned head. turned out the oil was Kaiser Soze. <laughs> it's been reading gold this whole time. From some readings about the movie, it seemed like it was very well received and regarded at the time. It was well reviewed by the newspapers that covered it. It's hard to tell from the readings what happened next because two books I have disagree on whether the film had a wide distribution throughout black America or according to the biography of Step and Fetch It if the film suffered inadequate distribution and promotion and went unnoticed by black audiences. <laughs> what truly matters was that it was made. All two reels of it. It was African Americans creating the opportunity It was a short. That wasn't there for them
0: before. All the reels had to go to Birth of a Nation.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's weird because I was reading about that experience of black actors at the time. And a lot of them were like, well, you can say we don't have opportunities. But I had, I mean, like a lot of us were working on Birth of a Nation. They gave us work. So like as much as it wasn't good roles, they gave us work. And they're like, well, we were trying to, but they couldn't pay a lot of people. Lincoln. Anyways, I read a lot of weird things where I'm like, that's awful. I don't like reading this.
0: (laughs) It's sad when you have to, the only way you can make money is to do something that it goes so against decorating. everything you believe yeah, in.
1: It's- so awful. The movie was not set for a wide release, but managed to book special venues at churches, schools, and segregated theaters. At this point, George took a medical leave from the post office and moved to Los Angeles, put all his energy and time into filmmaking. He took the reins as chief production, head writer, booking agent, publicist, distributor, all of this for Lincoln. He hired talented actors and actresses such as Albertine Pickens from the Lafayette Players, an all-black LA based theater company. I found a photo of Miss Pickens with Jolly Roll Morton in 1917 oh, no. outside of Getaway catalog. I thought say, <laughs> get away. She only appears in in one listing on IMDb, uh, and that's 1917's The Law of Nature, which was a Lincoln picture. The second Lincoln production was a 3 reeler titled The Trooper of Company K, which was released in 1918. It dealt with the 1960 massacre of black troops in the Army's 10th Cavalry during the U.S. campaign against Mexican bandits and revolutionaries. It was filmed in the San Gabriel Valley with a cast of over 300 extras. The yeah. Lincoln Company was able to get costumes and props from big Hollywood studios. I couldn't find out which ones, though. Next movie after that was called A Man's Duty, which was released in September of 1919. And this movie we dealt with a black man's right to participate freely in america but the movie proved to be a marginal operation um, what marginal operation what do you mean like it, 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 not a lot of m- yeah i think they kind of started to tighten the the what's the phrase titan uh the clash, belt. Of the it was clash of the titans clash um, of the titans clash of the titan the belts you're very good with words has anyone told you that before i read it you're like a stevie wonder like a child prodigy of <laughs> just putting words together that don't belong together
0: mm, you're a child prodigy of breaking my heart
1: <laughs> eventually the wind was knocked out of the sails when universal discovered that Lincoln pictures which was being run partly by one of their contract actors was stealing black customers for its own films they gave johnson the ultimatum and between struggling risking his livelihood for his beliefs or sticking with the sure thing he understandably chose the sure thing walking away from lincoln and onto roles at universal that would offer him which included king kong the mummy the most dangerous game he plays ivan and 1930s moby dick as quickway at this point uh, playing the mummy i don't know We'll um, the mummy. He might have been the mummy. Um, it wasn't really Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff couldn't be bothered that day. <laughs> Prove it. Dr. Unwrap him. Dr. James D. Smith was elevated uh, to the president of Lincoln MPC, and George continued to take the bulk of the operations. At this point, they release uh, By Birth of Right in 1921. It's about an African-American middle class success. Familiar. It's about a light-skinned man, black man who passes for a white man the movie also has an appearance by booker t washington which is pretty cool it premiered to a full house accompanied by john t spike's jazz band at the trinity auditorium the first home of the la philharmonic on grand and ninth street george survived promotional screams to woo moviegoers he organized spirited street parades and hired beautiful young women to sell tickets at social centers churches throughout town but the limited income levels in the black communities prevented him from filling theaters he rented the films to exhibitors for 15 to 20 dollars a day but had a hard time making consistent profits he finally appealed to the banks but they him down seeing no advantage in investing in black films they were surviving on a shoestring budget at this point supported by two of the actors belula hall and jimmy smith who might be dr james smith i don't know but there was also depression in the economy after the first world war would set the one with the nazis mm-hmm. um let me double check that was a big block to overcome but according to many readings which is three they all seem to agree that what truly did the company in was the spanish influenza which was sweeping through the country and killing more people than the war and closing down many black movie houses by 1923 the lincoln motion picture company had to call it which is a shame in the end they had created five productions and in that they created opportunities to represent their community with pride with roles that had pride and heroism and drama built into the characters sadly none of those movies exist today in their entirety they were improperly stored and eventually disintegrated in warehouses. sad fate what came next for the johnson brothers well as i mentioned Noble they also disintegrated they also disintegrated with their film because it was a picture of dorian gray a picture <laughs> like a motion picture of dorian gray
0: i could do it too uh, you're very good with words I think you're good with words.
1: <laughs> Hang words. On. Hang Let on. Let me put
0: my hat on.
1: My hat goes on my head, and I'm going to wear it <laughs> on my head. Noble started getting better roles in Universal, really great movies. George, now going by George by Perry, began a lifelong mission to preserve as much history of the Lincoln Motion Picture Company as he could, gathering a collection of thousands of items that relate to the story of the race, film, black storytellers, and of the evolving and changing face of black life in this country. This includes clippings, photographs, scripts, correspondence, contracts, etc. Extensive notes and his own oral history. When he passed, in 1977, the year Star Wars came out, George Johnson ensured the survival of the. <laughs> now that's
0: a movie, and then he disintegrated. And, then, and, and,
1: and like like Obi Wan Kenobi, <laughs> he only left his clothes, his slacks, and, and his a really director's nice shirt. chair. Yeah, pulled um, up director's chair. So when he died, he left this entire collection to UCLA Special Collection, where oh. it remains. Where I saw the exhibit. His brother Noble passed through the following year in Yukaipa, which is in San Bernardino. Their legacy, of course, continues through their efforts through the decades. Two people I thought of pretty quickly when I thought about these two were. Charles Burnett, who made L.A. movies like Killer Sheep, and Marvin Van Peebles, who is credited for creating black exploitation movies in L.A. His big one is Sweet Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which (laughs) is precedes Shaft by a few months. A legacy of black independent filmmakers creating works on their own in the same town that billion dollar Hollywood Empire movies are pooped out and begins with the Johnson Brothers and all those who worked for Lincoln MPC. I
0: read something, or I I keep hearing that like 95% of the movies made before like 1950 are all lost. (laughs) According to Hugo, they were turned into like high heel or something, <laughs> but they're just not there.
1: Yeah, I took one of those classes on like trying to archive yeah. film and all that nitrate stuff. And yeah, it's like, well, there's not much you could do for it. They yeah. just continue to transfer it over and over. But like, if it, you can only do that for like the big films, so like, yeah. And if you
0: them. if you like look at it wrong, it'll
1: explode. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> if you like tilt it too much, it'll yeah. just turn into a different movie. Uh, <laughs> Wizard of Oz used to be different.
0: So this, Justin, local black business, famous Amos, slightly solves cookie conundrum. Oh, <gasps> that's right. This next story is about a little cookie monster named Wallace. <laughs> Amos. (laughs) (laughs) Wallace Amos Jr. Little Wally was born July 1st, 1936 in Tallahassee, Florida, to a profoundly uncookie-like family. (laughs) His dad would take him along to strange women's houses and make him wait on the porch while he went inside to cheat on his wife. And then his mom, when he got home, would beat him with electrical
1: cords. Wow, that's the worst (laughs) way to start a story. You like origin
0: stories. It was a radioactive electrical cord, though, and it turned him into a cookie man he has the power to squirt pecans wherever he can luckily that marriage got dunked in milk and fell apart when wally was 12 and he was sent to live with his aunt della bryant in harlem of course one thing his aunt Love doing was baking cookies. Oh yeah, like this this ch- I, you know I do, yeah, I guess an- I really do love uh, you do, origin yeah. stories, you especially do. ones of boys living with their aunt and uncle in New York. Yeah, Those are my favorite. That, origin that, that, that's it. All
1: leads to there. <laughs> are your parents
0: your real parents? Oh, you mean Aunt Mom? <laughs> no, <laughs> Aunt Mother. So Wally loved eating the cookies, and she even taught him how to make them himself. And so he got interested. He got so interested that he ended up going to a food trades vocational high school. Hell yeah! But in <laughs> where's this uh, young cool Greg? No. <laughs> with slang terms. Speaking of heck. <laughs> but in 1955, he made two questionable decisions in a row and he dropped out of high school to join the Air Force. Boy, so, four years. That's th- an opposite. Yeah, four years later. It's as American as apple cookies. <laughs> four years later, he left the military and he went back to New York City, where he enrolled at secretarial school and got a job in the stock room at Saks Fifth Avenue, where he was able to work his way up to manager of the supply department before he walked away from that to get a job in the mail room at the William Morris Agency. And this is where things get crazy. Would you believe it? The Green Goblin shows up. <laughs> Harry <laughs> Osborne Go ahead. Please don't slow down for that. Keep going. You
2: mean nah.
0: <laughs> the Hobgoblin? He managed to make enough connections inside the company that in 1962 <laughs> famous Amos became the first African American talent agent in William Morris history, and this is a huge deal. But he downplayed it, saying, "I was in the right place at the right time, and I was the right color." As a talent agent, this is so weird. Famous Amos, he was the agent for in the early 60s in these people's prime: Dionne Warwick. Oh my god, Dionne Warwick, Patti LaBelle, Sam Cooke. He was Mar. <laughs> oh my god. He was Marvin Gaye's first agent. And he's credited with discovering the Supremes and Simon and Garfunkel.
1: Famous Amos, Famous Amos, that is spectacular. Famous Wally Amos, that is spectacular. It's almost unbelievable. Yeah. What's uh, your sources on this? A Wikipedia. Some guy. I wrote it on
0: Wikipedia. I crumbled a bunch of cookies, and this is what they spelled out <laughs> in a
1: teacup.
0: This is true. He was so good that he was promoted to the head of William Morris's rock and roll department. But that's where he hit the he hit the ceiling. There, he wanted to head the entire music department. Unfortunately, he was black, and the company could not allow that. But I Wally, brought you
1: Sam Cook, I brought you the supreme, the greatest you the sound group of the '60s. Band-
0: of- but Wally, like you saw before, he wasn't interested in being a black icon or anything like yeah. that. What would you call it? With J- what was Jackie Rob race man? Race man, yeah. Yeah. He wasn't like that. He wasn't trying to change the system. He just wanted to make a living in it wherever it would allow him yeah. to do so. Unfortunately, that wasn't going to happen anymore at William Morris. So in 1967, he left them and moved to LA to set up his own talent management company. His office was at the AM Records, formerly Charlie Chaplin Studios, now Jim Henson Studios. Mm-hmm. Also, pretty much in their prime, he was working right next door to people like Herb Alpert and Quincy Jones. Oh my God. He he managed to get clients like Abby Lincoln, Oscar Brown Jr., and comedian Franklin A.J., who was in the burbs. But as you can guess by not recognizing any of those names, was business was not good. Yeah. They're Herb no, they're no famous, Supreme. Yeah, the Supreme. Yeah, the West Coast Supremes. Oh He didn't manage Herb Alpert. He was just oh. in an office. Oh, oh I
1: got all names mixed up. Yeah. Well, you <laughs> discovered Quincy Jones, who just said.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, irrefutably. <laughs> he had just uprooted his family and moved them across the country. He left a high-profile job managing some of the most important names of the 60s to strike out on his own, and he f- was failing. Yeah and he was stressed out and he was in crisis so one night after work he was doing his grocery shopping at the rock and roll ralph's (laughs) on sunset and just on impulse he went down the baking aisle and he saw a package of nestle semi-sweet morsels they were radioactive though (laughs) and on the back they had a recipe for chocolate chip cookies and it brought him back to his days cooking with his aunt the good days that's what he was happy
1: you're explaining so many twilight zone episodes to me right now and then he looked
0: outside turns out the mayor's a cookie
1: I thought I was in Rock and Roll outside it's Harlem and it's nice and I'm watching myself make cookies <laughs> and
0: wait a minute that's Nat King Cole he's going to the supper club they're creating chicken and waffles And uh, wait a minute Mr. Fatburger I thought you died <laughs> so he got the morsels and the rest of the baking stuff he needed and he went home and he started baking a hybrid recipe of what was on the bag and what he remembered that his aunt taught him so he refined and perfected the recipe and he took to baking cookies just to relax and to take his mind off his failing talent yeah. agency Oh boy! so they were chocolatey they were crunchy they were the size of a silver. dollar, but what is he going to do with all these cookies? He started bringing them into work to give them out to everybody. He gave them to all the people he worked with. He would staple a bag to haul his business plans. His cookies became his calling card as an agent, but he realized that people were happy to see his cookies than they were to see his clients. So maybe it's time to leave talent agenting behind and follow this new road that was open to him, professional cookie man. So he wanted to open up a shop to sell his cookies, so he borrowed $25,000 from some of his rich friends like Marvin Gaye and Helen ready who wrote i am woman hear me roar mm-hmm. and her husband who is the united artist records president artie mogul fitting name so with this money on march 10th 1975 at 7181 sunset boulevard where bossa nova now is he opened up the famous amos chocolate chip cookie company and as it said on the building the original home of the famous amos chocolate chip cookie wow when did you think Famous Amos was from.
1: Not 70s. I thought it was much older.
0: Exactly. Like Melissa kept... I, I told her like repeatedly, this is from the 70s. She's like, no. The,
1: it's the packaging. And yeah, the feel, it looks like it's, it's from the 20s. The 20s, like the or, the 20s or the 30s. Yeah, It's yeah. like a Depression-era cookie. Yeah, it tastes it's like not it a, too. It's not a decadent disco cookie. No, no, no.
0: These were the cookies that fueled the doors. were
1: <laughs> <These> ah, <laughs> Otis Redding.
0: All before they died. No. The store opened with a big gala and they had a huge advertising campaign leading up to it. So the cookies themselves weren't like... they weren't mass-produced ones that we all had in lunch in elementary school. They were really the only place around selling high-quality handmade cookies, and this kind of began the whole gourmet cookie movement.
1: I fought in the revolution about <laughs> for the
0: Confederates, the, conf- the cookie <laughs> the Confederates. <laughs> so some of them had pecans in them, but the majority of the cookies were just chocolate chip and they sold for three dollars a pound and they were immediately successful. Within a few months of opening, he was already opening more locations in Santa Monica, more places on the West Coast. Bloomingdale started selling bags of his cookies and it wasn't just because the cookies were good. It's because Wally was a great promoter and he had a huge personality to match it. So, and he was the face of the company. He had a big beard. He was always happy. he would. Always Always be wearing a Daishiki and a Panama
1: hat. That's pretty cool.
0: Which in 1980 it got donated to the Smithsonian really? as a symbol of grassroots entrepreneurship and a mainstream African American business. He had bags of cookies wherever he went, and if you passed him on the street, he'd give you a bag oh, of cookies. He, I, live in I know. I want to live in the 70s. Cookies 70s. everywhere, and nothing else is wrong. <laughs> he traded cookies for radio time to promote his shop. Wow. He was on the covers of Time, People, Newsweek called him the greatest cookie salesman alive. He partied with Andy Warhol and Muhammad Ali. Oh my god. From 1977 to 81, he had a float in the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. He was on Taxi and the Jeffersons. That's cool. In 1986, he got an award from President Reagan. You know, biggest fan of Roscoe's. <laughs> he got it for entrepreneurial excellence. That's it was great. so weird to have something as pure and honest as a chocolate chip cookie shop in the middle of 1970's Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. That everyone thought it, was, they thought it was a front for drugs, but Wally, he genuinely loved selling cookies and he was successful. In the first year, they sold $300,000 worth of cookies. Shh. The Headquarters eventually moved to Calabasas, but then there was a fire and they went into an apartment building in Sherman Oaks, which I hope it was mine the, until they relocated that fire must have
1: smelled so good anyways go
0: even their documents no <laughs> it's a little bit of cookie is crips, someone cooking cookie documents <laughs> eventually they relocated permanently to Van Nuys headquarters where they already had a baking and packaging plant by 1977 and then they opened another one later in Nutley New Jersey of course with both the places making over six tons of cookies a week <sighs> by 1982 they were taking in 12 million dollars with famous Amos cookies being sold in over 20,000 locations worldwide however when people saw the success of selling cookies like this, they wanted to get in on the action and competitors started popping up like the evil Mrs. Fields. And to try to make sure she and the others didn't get a strong foothold in the market, Wally expanded his company more and more, but he expanded too quickly and he was not really a businessman. So he found himself running this giant enterprise that he was not qualified to do. And he was in way over his head, but he was protected of the company because it was his baby and his name was on it and his face was on it. So he wouldn't listen to the suggestions of any of his staff and he started making bad decisions. And by 1985, he was losing $300,000 in revenue. That's how much he made the first year. That's when he realized he had to do something. So he started selling off his interest in the company to bring in executives who knew how to handle a big business. But these outside investors got more and more shares in the company until Wally realized one day that he was no longer owner of the company. So from there, things were out of his cookie dough covered hands. In 1985, Famous Amos was sold to the Bass Brothers, who it turned out weren't good at managing companies (laughs) either. So they in turn sold it to an investor investment group for $5 million, who then in 1987 continued the new tradition of animal name families owning it and sold it to the bear family, but they weren't any good.
1: So they sold it to the salmon family. Yeah.
0: And they went upstream with it and sold it to the grasshoppers. So the new company lost $2.5 million. So in 1988, they were sold again to the Shansby group for $3 million. So Shansby, they cut their production costs, they redesigned the bags, and closed their retail stores and did the innovative thing of putting famous Amos cookies in convenience stores, cafeterias- yeah. By 1991, they even had Burger King carrying them in 200 locations. But most importantly, they started selling them in vending machines. Mm-hmm. Basically, they changed the product from a gourmet specialty item to a low priced common cookie. Yeah. Which is what I love.
1: <laughs> That's my language.
0: That's what I like. <laughs> By this point, Wally had gone from president to vice chairman to being only a paid spokesman when Shansby bought the company, but he left in frustration after a year. But what Shansby did saved the business. So they did what any good corporation who doesn't care about the product did they sold it again again in 1992 to the President Baking Company for $61 million. President Baking Company also made most of the Girl Scout cookies, and while they grew under Shansby, they thrived under president. They got them into bigger grocery store chains like Costco and stuff like that. Famous Amos was now making $74 million a year. But then in 1998, the president company got bought up by Keebler for $450 million. So now Keebler owned Famous Amos. And Keebler offered Wally a two-year contract to come back to be the spokesman for them. But he hated what they did to the recipe of his cookies, so he only agreed to come back if they changed the recipe back. Mm -hmm. And they actually agreed to it. And also, he lost his house, so he needed to do this. But after the two years, Wally was gone again. And then in two 2001, this never-ending game of corporate Hungry Hungry Hippos continued, and Kelly Kellogg, Kelly Kellogg, Kellogg. bought Keebler for $4.5 billion, so now Famous Amos was owned by Kellogg, which is where they stand today, and the only retail stars are in Malaysia. But what about Wally? Even before he officially left the company, he said that his heart left them in 1985. Then when he finally left them, he said he didn't even want to talk about chocolate chip cookies anymore. (laughs) He was so over Famous Amos that he shaved his beard and he stopped wearing hats. Oh, that
1: breaks my heart. I know.
0: But lucky for his new distaste for cookies, the Shansby Group made him sign a two-year no-compete contract so he couldn't sell cookies or use his name or his face to sell anything that even resembled a cookie. So he tried at various times being the spokesperson for United Airlines, the California Egg Board, and Hush Puppies. Mm -hmm. But by 1991, he wanted to make cookies again. He couldn't help himself. So he said, I enjoy making cookies. There's something very nice about it. There is. So he started a company called Wally Amos Presents Chip and Cookie which violated his no compete contract ah. on every single word yeah. of
1: that. That seems like he just like, you know what?
0: <laughs> Here I go. Here I go. They won't notice. So Chip and Cookie, there was a cartoon boy and girl, Cookies, okay. and he believed that they had the potential to take over the world like Hello Kitty did. So he started uh, this is their origin story. <laughs> so he started selling shirts of them in the JCPenneys in Hawaii, which is where he'd been living there since 1977 and when Star Wars came out, you know, when that guy disintegrated, and of, of course, he got got sued immediately, but never went to give up. Wally tried again in 1992 with, they said, you can't use your name or anything that, so his new company is called Uncle Noname's cookies—that's spelled Uncle No Name.
1: That's funny. Noname,
0: funny guy. That's a funny guy. Each bag of his cookies had a recipe for lemonade on it for what you do when life hands you lemons. But his <laughs> manufacturer was terrible, and some cookies were too big, some were too small, some of the bags didn't have cookies in them at all. Oh my god! Which is a poem imagine. I'm working on. <laughs> so he switched the company over to making muffins. But by 1977, he was 1.3 million dollars in debt, and he filed for bankruptcy. Yikes. That's why when Keebler offered him to be the spokes in 1998. They also promised to let him use his name again for new businesses. Mm -hmm. So he agreed. So since then, he briefly had other companies called Aunt Della's Cookies, and he resurrected the Chip and Cookie Shop for a little bit. He still has, it's now called Uncle Wally's Muffin Company, but his current cookie shop is in Honolulu called the Cookie Kahuna, and his new look is to always be wearing hats that look like watermelons, which is very weird. They literally, it looks like he's wearing a watermelon
1: on his head.
0: That's kind of fun. He's a fun guy. (laughs) He hates what Kellogg's done to his cookies, saying they cheapened the product. He was on an episode of Shark Tank in 2016 selling cookie kahuna cookies. They said no. Oh. He was also on an episode of The Office as himself. Really? Yeah. More important than his cookies, if you can believe it, is his charity work. He was big on making sure children knew how to read. He was spokesperson for the Literacy Volunteers of America from 1979 to 2002. He was on the boards for the National Center for Family Literacy, Read to Me International, and Communities and Schools. He started the Read It Loud Foundation to encourage parents to read read to their kids for 10 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. He had a show on PBS called Learn to Read. 1% of all his noname profits went to cities and schools, which was a dropout prevention program. In 1987, he won the Horatio Alger Award. and In yeah. 1991, he got a literacy award from President Bush 1, who told him, your greatest contribution to your country is not your signature straw hat in the Smithsonian, but the people you have inspired to read. Today, he's still pushing chip and cookie characters with his chip and cookie read aloud foundation.
1: Never heard of them.
0: I'm wearing a shirt right uh, now. That's uh, yeah. what this is. As a tattoo on my wrist. <laughs> Chip on one hand, cookie Cooking on the other. Way. That's what yeah. it says on my knuckles. In his cookie shop in Hawaii, he has a reading room where you can go oh, wow. read and eat your cookies, and he's also there every Saturday reading to kids. He said, I want to be known as a guy who cared about people, a guy who loved people and loved life. Some kids he wasn't around on Saturdays to read to, however, were his own kids. <laughs> By most accounts, he was not a great dad or husband because he was so engrossed in his businesses. So he has four kids spread out over four marriages. His first wife, Shirley Ellis, who was a singer. She had schizoaffective disorder and she eventually killed herself in Oof. 2003. They had been divorced a long time, but she left a note in lipstick on her mirror saying they killed Sean. I love Wallace. Sean being the son that they had together. No one knows what it means. Yeah. He's not dead. Even though it wasn't Wally's fault that his kid's mom, mom. killed herself, yeah. his son was resentful that he wasn't there more for him. He called his dad a bearded, amped up Willy Wonka and blackface pushing cookies to a town full of 70s hedonists. Wow, that's
1: uh, harsh. Ruff. Yeah.
0: Oof. But despite his troubles and his failures in business. And personally, he's always been optimistic and he has never stopped. He loves selling cookies and he believes that the concept of retirement was created by insurance companies (laughs) to sell you more products. He says, inactivity will kill you. It's a direct path to the grave. Do something you love and it will extend your life, keep you going. If that sounds like something a motivational speaker would say, that's because it is. Because he started doing motivational (laughs) speaking when he lost ownership of his company. He's written 10 books with names like the famous Amos story, The Man Who Launched a Thousand Chips. Uh But let's not forget that this was an African. American man running a business during some especially racist times in our country, but he refused to let that stop him. He said, when I started selling cookies in 1975, I knew there would be some people who would not eat my cookies because I was black, and I thought, that's their loss. (laughs) Nothing is an obstacle unless you say it is. All the water in the world can't hurt you unless it gets inside Wow. an interesting guy. Interesting He's guy. He's still alive.
1: I want to I want to want to go.
0: Let's go to Honolulu. We're going to Honolulu. <laughs> <laughs> Pack your flip-flops.
1: <laughs> the only thing you need in Honolulu is to do this place.
0: We're, we're going to need a flip-flop and a snorkel. We're going to Honolulu. Oh, sirs, you must be going to Honolulu. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, you You here for cookies? No, he doesn't sell
0: cookies anymore. We're here for the Muffin Man. <laughs> do you
1: know the Muffin Man? Oh, Wally Amos? You're right. Where that doesn't seem like, even the story you told now doesn't seem like it. Thrived in '77, Los Angeles. Like it seems like such a weird idea that in the middle of all the stuff know, that it was, it's remembered a man, for, the, a man was walking around selling cookies, uh, and, and I was the American
0: man selling, selling cookies, cookies, and it was when,
1: popular. Yeah.
0: Well, as I was doing the research on this, it just the more I looked into it, it was like, what am I reading? Yeah. This is he's managing the Supremes. <laughs> what is happening?
1: And it also shows how scary it is when you do something you love and it becomes popular, and then suddenly, I know, like the business aspect. And you had a page of just like companies buying stuff from each other and I know. Group, that's terrifying machinery I know that it gets out of you create something and it gets out of your
0: hand but this is the second person in my stories who were like i did something now it's really popular i'm not having fun anymore I'm not, yeah
1: exactly That <laughs> sounds almost a little bit like uh the fat burger story too of, like, Yeah. once it hit a, a yeah. peak where there's so many locations to manage it's like well i'm just i'm working myself dead. yeah, yeah.
0: talented people who didn't sign up for this mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that that's if this podcast ever gets popular i'm quitting right away first fan we get i'm quitting
0: oh so you think we're talented people nah. I see what you're saying oh you're complimenting us I was trying to compliment you all black businesses all black businesses something all to be proud LA. of yeah. except maybe Roscoe's but stuff to celebrate yeah yeah who knows maybe hey, you we, should I don't <laughs> know what, I don't yeah, know what the story anything, of Roscoe's yeah. is you know we're, we're also a business we might sure we might not be big sure we might not be popular sure we might not be of quality sure you might not be listening anymore sure mm-hmm. this might not be something you want to hear even if you were listening sure all,
1: all of the above
0: but we're trying to grow to fat burger proportions
1: I want to be a fat burger i want to be a famous amos where i have all the stuff i love <laughs> taking away from me
0: what i'm saying is i want to move to hawaii uh, and put on a hat that looks like a fruit papaya I'm- um, <laughs> I'm the papaya man the, no, um, no <laughs> copyright infringement. so if you want to help us move to Hawaii and get our uh, various fruit hats uh, yeah. leave us a review on iTunes we
1: really appreciate it leave us a review or a five or star Stars. Yeah, if you have an
0: iPhone open your podcast app it's right
1: there look for us it's easy we are on Patreon now oh, yeah. which is a lot of fun you can check us out on there we'll mm-hmm. probably have a video promoting that coming out pretty soon if you don't know anything about Patreon uh,
0: yeah you can donate money a dollar five dollars gets you some stuff ten gets you some stuff fifteen yeah. or you could be a one one-time thing, it could be a monthly thing, it could be any amount of
1: money you want, and we're putting a lot of love into it. It's so much love, all the love that I'm capable of giving, which is like which ah, is postcard. like a postcard. Yeah, well, just like three, three postcards po- worth. Yeah, three postcards a month. <laughs> uh, follow us on Twitter at LA Meekly. We're on Instagram Allie underscore meekly. We post every day. Like us on Facebook or whatever. Uh, uh, our main site is ally. LA- meekly.tumblr.com yeah, That's
0: 15 months the, and we finally yeah, got
1: I it I know we, we have all the pictures on there of all the corresponding with episodes we have an episode archive. if you're new to this episode yeah. new to this podcast
0: our email la.meekly at gmail.com you can send us comments suggestions uh, coupons to Fatburger or if you or someone you know works at an interesting or historic place in LA we do field, we do trips. field trips we'll come out and interview
1: you we have a couple field trips coming out oh, next yeah. month which I'm pretty excited about yeah, these, are fun, yeah, these are fun ones they're all fun ones they're all fun ones that's the best part is going on location I think since here talking to you is like the worst part of doing anything. I think we Let's just cut here.
0: <laughs> I think I could find a good edit point. The only thing he releases is me saying that. Happy 50th. <laughs> the worst part of my day is sitting with you here. Is there anything else? Oh, yeah. We also got nominated for an Oscar. We wrote The Shape of Water. Um,
1: I mean, our draft was a lot different than what came out, but we still wrote it. So we have our name deep in that. <laughs>
0: Stick for after the credits. They ask we'll uh, the
1: Creature up. of the to yeah. join the Avengers. Anyways. Yeah, and
0: that's the origin story of uh, Swamp Thing. <laughs> Again, this is our 50th episode.
1: Thank you for Thank sticking you. around. Thank you for this. This is your first one. Thank you for... Thanks Give for it a try. Around. Yeah, uh, thanks for st- coming in at fifty, right when we're hot. <laughs>
0: hey, 50's the new one. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been real. It's the worst time of Greg's life, but I had fun. You know, I like
1: sitting here talking to you, and I, I've never said anything to disagree with that.
0: Greg's voice gets gravelly when he's lying. No, this you is the, this that. is
1: honest to me, as I sound like a like an old yeah. drifter who rode too many <laughs> freight trains. I'm just
0: so thanks again. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next month in uh, March.
1: March. March. Merch.
0: Merch. March. Merch. March. That's when we can sell everything. So that's been. And yet another episode of LA Meekly. It all started in 2013. Yeah. We got bit by a radioactive talkie bug. <laughs>